Section 27 of The Heirloom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Caleb Schroeder. The Heirloom by T. Duthy Lyle. Volume 2, Chapter 13. Only a Dog. But in the midst of all this dark obscurity, of all this strange mystery, in the depths of this conflict of words, wherein the great London conveyancy solicitor, and every one else who thought they knew, and contemptuously pooh-poohed any contrary statement, when they asserted that the late heir to the Vernwood estate was foully and most mysteriously murdered, ruthlessly butchered and dead, while one of, and probably the ablest and acutest detective that either the American or the European continent could produce, just as strongly asserted. Notwithstanding the New York world's highly flavored report that he had been burnt to a cinder in Long Island City, and his remains reduced to ashes, Colonel Vandermeulen, as we will call him once again, just as strongly asserted that he was alive that since the alleged date of the murder he had been in New York, and that he was now in London, and went so far as to undertake to prove to Mr. Lumley, Dr. Cyrus Wells, or anybody else that Bertram Gonault was still in the flesh. During all these weeks and months of contention, of conflict, of statements, and war of words, what had become of Jules Massey? Yes, what had become of him? Where was he? The faithful black servant who had so nearly fallen a victim to Abraham Briggs, inexperienced and misdirected zeal? Where was he? As Jules Massey is a character in this story, not altogether despicable, and whom we hate not, we will endeavor, although it may be only in a few short sentences, to follow out his course of life. The Mental Anguish which the poor Jules had experienced when, as we have told the reader, he first discovered his late master's mutilated remains, and after that, the prostration which came over him when he, he above all others, he who to save his master's life would have freely given up his own, the deep, dark sea of tribulation, into which he was plunged, and upon which he tossed, utterly overwhelmed and engulfed, cannot be written, could not be spoken in words. In charging the grand jury prior to Jules' trial, very truly had the judge spoken when he said that the formalities which a trial of murder involved was a painful ordeal, painful to all concerned. How painful? How more than painful? How terrible, how frightful and ghastly an ordeal it was, perhaps few more truly than the dark man Jules Massey, who had passed through so dark a cloud, had learnt to know. His prostration after the murder, and which succeeded his arrest, seemed to him infinitely profounder darkness than that dark passage of the soul through the valley of the shadow of death. But after all these painful formalities and doubts, Jules once more, as we have shown, was a free man as free as the fowls of the air or the winds of heaven, without cable, without anchor, without attachment, to tie him or hold him to any place in life. His past seemed a great, 
strange, in many respects a splendid, a glorious, as well as a terrible dream, a dream which, as the sensitized glass of the photographer may be cleansed, and the blurred imperfect picture be wiped away, so Jules Massey desired should be swept away, and forever blotted out like some unsightly film from his life. Still, for all this, as there had been the strongest affection for his master, there was now stinging his heart the keenest pangs of regret, the profoundest grief that his master, who seemed to him as the more important part himself, was no more. But it must not be supposed that Jules Massey had been all these years the trusted servant, the paymaster and almoner of a millionaire, and a millionaire of his late master's generosity of heart, and had ended his term of servitude in penury, poverty, or want. By no means, during his master's lifetime, as the late Bertram Gonault rose to the zenith of his wealth, and the zenith, such as it was, of his fame, Jules Massey's wage had grown, accumulated and increased, while his wants had been few. He was even palatially housed, luxuriously fed, and his own personal adornment, the satisfaction of his inherent personal vanity, was about the only outlet which he had for the dissipation of his ever-increasing pile. Thus, year after year, Jules Massey, instead of being like many other men, struggling continuously to acquire a competency, fighting to keep the very wolf from the door, was, without any particular effort of his own, except the natural honesty and fidelity of his nature, which was in him, adding, week by week, month by month, year by year, to his store. But now, although imprisonment had been also a terrific blow to his vanity, and Jules' amour propre had received a terrible wound, yet now he walked forth through the world a free and independent and unfettered man. Whither should he turn his steps? For now, all the paths of the world which men travel, north, east, south, west, lay open to his wandering feet. At Vernwood he would not, could not stay, so that the pains of the past might be in some measure mitigated, obliterated, or forgotten by the distractions of the present. He turned his back upon Vernwood, the scene of so much that was terrible to his mind to remember and to contemplate, and so hard to forget, and sought the more busy, distracting world of metropolitan London life. But even here, in the midst of its millions of the human race, he seemed, in a measure, friendless and lost. He recollected years, many years ago now, when, with his last master, he, a mere black slave boy, and his master then almost a penniless exiled wanderer, without so much as one square foot of this world's earth on which to settle his roving foot or to call his own, that they had lodged in a house somewhere in the West End. And this house Massey tried, but tried without success, to find. At last, after various unsuccessful efforts to find the resting place of even a room in the city, where there are so many thousands of luxurious homes, Jules Massey located himself in a small house, in a small street, in that select locality of the great world where there are few small houses and but few small streets. 
that corner of London surrounded by so much wealth between Oxford Street, Park Lane, and Grosvenor Square. But we said, said perhaps rather incorrectly, that Jules Massey was in London friendless and alone, and humanely speaking this was so, as alone as a man can be in a great busy hive, or tossing on the wide sea of London life, but he was not alone absolutely, as he had one friend. When Jules Massey left Vernwood, or rather when he quitted the vicinity of Vernwood, after his acquittal of the capital charge, and by which time the management of the Vernwood estate, and all that appertained thereto, had by the order of the High Court of Chancery passed into Mr. Lumley's hands. The black steward and the valet of the landowner had made to Mr. Lumley one request, and that request was that he might have as companion, and take under his especial care, the great Mount St. Bernard dog, Monk, although for that matter the great dog had conclusively proved that he was quite as able to take care of Jules Massey as Jules Massey was to take care of him. To this request Mr. Lumley, knowing that the dog would be in the best hands and sensibly affected by the touching incident which we have noticed in connection with Jules Massey's arrest, readily and willingly agreed. And so, in his otherwise solitary London existence, Monk was still Jules Massey's friend, the link which seemed to unite him with the past, and thus Jules did not feel quite utterly alone. If Monk did not share the dark man's bed, he shared his lodging, and he shared his board. And night by night, a vigilant watcher, he rested on the matted or carpeted floor to welcome his human friend and keeper with a look of canine recognition as soon as the morning broke, or to rest his great lion-like head on Jules's knee or on the table, gazing wistfully and patiently in the dark face as Jules partook of his morning meal. Often during the day, or in those autumn afternoons, the black man might have been seen. A conspicuous and noticeable figure among the crowd of pedestrians and passers and loungers who frequent Oxford Street, Regent Street, and the thoroughfares adjacent to his temporary home, always well, even fashionably, and elaborately dressed. His well-cut clothes, his somewhat haughty hair, all the more noticeable in connection with the ebon blackness of his skin. Or, in the inseparable pair, the black man and the great dog might have been seen together in the less frequented walks of Kensington Gardens or Hyde Park. If Jules Massey's pride had sustained a terrible wound, a blow that had brought the deep-seated vanity of his nature to the ground, it showed itself certainly not in a neglect of the careful elaboration of the external man, but that which attracted more public notice even than the well and carefully dressed person of Jules Massey, his fashionably cut, scrupulously neat attire, the gold-headed cane that he dangled and swung so deftly in his delicately gloved hand, the ebon blackness of his face, or, to please the dictates of good taste, his almost too profuse display of jewels, that which was even an object of greater remark and astonishment and admiration than the man. Was the curiosity excited by the sight of the great lounging lion-like dog? If a dog indeed it at all was, which some none too learned in canine stories seemed to doubt, which followed through the crowd, 
even within a short distance of the black man's heels. Dogs of the St. Bernard breed have only been imported into England during the last twenty or thirty years, and at the period of our story any dogs of this magnificent race were far more rare in England and would be far more the object of admiration and astonishment than they had since become, and even more than the well-dressed darky, as they called him, the enormous, tawny, lion-like beast, with his massive head, his intelligent countenance, and the careless, shambling, loose-jointed appearance of his walk, as he ever kept within an easy distance of his master's heels, was, as he passed along the crowded London streets, the butt of continuous running fire of popular wonder and remark. Many times was Jules offered tempting sums of money for the right to possess this canine curiosity, or prize. But even if Monk had been strictly speaking his own property to dispose of, which he was not, Jules Massey would as soon have thought of selling his head from off his shoulders with all its abundance of well-oiled, well-perfumed, well-brushed little curls, as he would have a thought of exchanging the great dog for gold. For sagacity and fidelity, for the picturesque appearance, for their great size, strength, docility of temper, and general physique, and above all for the splendid services which, from time immemorial, they have rendered to man, the race of dogs of which this splendid specimen was a scion, and which derive their appellation from the hospice of St. Bernard in the Alps, have behind them an ancestral record which is without its equal in the chronicles of the canine story. Whatever travellers or visitors to the hospice of St. Bernard may have been informed to the contrary, the origin of this magnificent race of dogs is so far enveloped in the obscurity of the past centuries, even by the holy fathers of the order themselves, it is not known. The monks at the hospice may point you to a portrait of Bernard de Menthon, its founder at a date some nine hundred years ago, in which the originator of the order is represented as accompanied by a large dog of the bloodhound type, and whatever lights this may throw upon the tradition, if it throw any lights at all, it shows that for generations and centuries these dogs have occupied such an indispensable place and played so important a part in the life at the monastery that without the aid of its dogs the functions of the religious fraternity in their work of rescue, charity, and mercy must cease. Without its dogs the peculiar work and existence of the monastery of St. Bernard could not continue to exist. According to another tradition of the monastery, its race of dogs descends from Parisian Mastiff and the Danish Hound. But this, too, is only tradition, and the sum of the total knowledge of the more remote and ancient history of the St. Bernard dog is that next to nothing concerning it is known. Be that as it may, we may say for the uninitiated that the original race of these dogs in the great snowstorm of 1812 were so constantly called into requisition in rescuing lost or imperiled travelers that, through great numbers perishing in the snowstorms of the Alps and by the fall of avalanches, there was brought about an almost total annihilation and extinction of the race. It may be explained that in the work 
of rescuing lost travelers who may be crossing the Alps by the Aosta and Martini Road in winter and overtaken by storms and buried in the snow, except in times of pressing emergency, only the male dogs and those individuals conspicuous for bodily strength, endurance, and intelligence are employed. Two pair of these dogs in company, one old and one young, leave the hospice of St. Bernard daily. One couple goes towards the last refuge about nine miles from the monastery on the Italian side towards Aosta, while the other couple take, similarly, the opposite or Swiss side of the Alps toward Martigny. And although the snow may have fallen to a great depth, thus obliterating every trace of the way, so unerring is their instinct that they are seldom known to deviate scarcely so much as a yard from the path. Each couple of dogs travel as far as the most distant cabin of shelter, which the monks erect for the protection of the travelers. The dogs enter the huts, and if they find any traveler taking shelter within the cabin, he is, by their mute solicitations, invited to follow them to the hospice. Or should that not be possible, or should a traveler be overtaken by the storm and buried, if even deeply, in the drifts, he is, as far as the dogs can accomplish it, kept alive or revived by licking or otherwise imparting the warmth of their own bodies to the dying or unconscious man, till they can communicate with the monks at the hospice, who immediately set out, well provided, with means of relief, to spot where the traveler has succumbed. The dogs are always sent on their saving errands of mercy in pairs, the young dog being the pupil of the old. We offer no apology for these remarks on the origin, history, traits, or duties among his native surroundings of this noble race of dogs. They are as docile and mild-tempered as they are magnanimous, intelligent, and physically brave and strong. We have said when we first introduced the great dog, Monk, into the story, which these pages record, that he was a choice selection, actually born at the hospice either purchased there by Bertram Gonault, or presented to him by the prior at the monastery in return for one of those outbursts of princely generosity in which the late owner of Vernwood not infrequently indulged. It matters not which, for buying the animal and having it presented in return for money is one and the same thing, and being so nearly related to the dogs of the purest breed. There was implanted within him all the striking instincts and characteristics of his race. We have intimated that Jules Massey was in London after the Vernwood tragedy, when London life was becoming comparatively dull, and during the months of the waning year. The summer, although with intervals of intenser heat and brightness, had, as in England sometimes come to us, on the whole been fitful, ungenial, and cold. Those who claimed to be weather-wise, the prophets of the sunshine and the storm, said there was an autumnal summer in reserve. But this prophecy proved not to be verified by the fact, for, as the last months of summer drew towards a close, it became more and more evident that autumn was to be a season the charm of whose soft delightful stillness was to be as if well-nigh blotted out, as if altogether absent from the year. The seaside resorts became bleak and cold, 
while damp and drenching mists came heavily down, enveloping in impenetrable fogginess the Scotch and northern moors. Men and women, those fortunate ones who move about at the caprices of their own fancy dictates, were doubtful whether to locate by sea or lake or shire or shore or town. And in the midst of this, when notwithstanding the ungenial aspect of the world beyond, those London livers, who at least pretend to follow the ton, began to draw down their blinds and tacitly tell to the world the transparent fib that they were not at home. Jules Massey began to feel that London world around him was becoming, to a gentleman of his independence, unendurably slow. And thus there dawned upon him the pleasing enlightenment that he too would be benefited by some change. But whither should he turn? Either to hold him hither, or attract him thither, he, Jules Massey, was minus either anchor to hold him or lodestone to attract him in life. And then all at once, as if by some inscrutable desire, one of those inspirations which come upon us such subtly that we wot not whence they are, unless of heaven-born, he made his resolve he would revisit Vernwood. Yes, he would revisit Vernwood notwithstanding all the terrible past. The past was past. If he had nothing to hope for from a visit, he had certainly no fear to apprehend. Why should he fear? He had done his duty to his master in the eyes of God, and his conscience smote him by the tacit reproach of not so much as one single condemning word. But he resolved not to go to Vernwood direct. It was with due consideration and due mature cogitation within a few days of arriving at his resolution that, with the great dog Monk still as his companion, Jules Massey alighted at the situation of a country town within about six or seven miles of Vernwood Estate, his old home. His appearance at a locality where he was well known caused perhaps some curiosity, perhaps some little surprise, that morbid curiosity of the vulgar to see the possessor of a name which has been on every tongue. As he had left London at no unconscionably early or inconvenient hour, for Jules was now his own independent master and could regulate his own hours, it was late in the day when he arrived at his journey's end, and he made up his own mind to sleep at a small quiet hotel where he was known, intending to walk over to Vernwood in the early part of the following day. But Jules Massey had not alighted for the train so much as half an hour, ere more than once he was accosted, and the strangest, most ghastly rumors reached his ears. The body of the late Bertram Gannolt had disappeared from, had not been suffered to rest even where all others may hope for some rest, even within the quiet of the grave, and rumor went still further than that, and asserted that the master of Vernwood was not even dead, that he had been seen, recognized, identified beyond dispute in London, and before that in New York, by a certain detective or police agent who had been deployed to investigate the cause. Such was the tenor of the sinister rumor which Jules Massey was compelled to hear. Would the marvels of the mysterious episode never cease? Would the bright air of Vernwood never be cleared of so dark a reproach? There were those who said, 
At what wild impossibilities will the superstitious and illiterate and ignorant, or the malicious and envious minded not assert, that the whole tragic drama which had befallen this young hare-brained American, or whatever he was, was not but one gigantic hoax, a cruel and stupendous farce, a, and a fraud on the fidelity of a community which had loyally devoted its allegiance to an ancient and honored name. And that evening, as he waited in town where he was passing the night, Jules Massey, from one and another, a patch here and a piece there, joining all together, got to hear the whole fabric of the incredible story. The weather, which, as we have said, for weeks and months had been unseasonable, became, as Jules Massey left London, intensely and abnormally bleak and cold, and as, for the black man, whose physical constitution was better adapted to endure an African summer, or the humid heat of the swamps and rice fields of his native Virginia or Maryland, the cold searching northeasters of a rigorous and uncertain English climate in one of its most rigorous and uncertain moods seemed to chill him to the very bones, and when he awoke and looked forth on the morning on which he intended walking over to Vernwood, to Jules Massey's most intense discomfiture as well as chagrin, it was upon what we called a white world. The snow had fallen deeply during the night, and with that quiet, preserving continually, which we sometimes witness, the large white feathery flakes came steadily, 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 all day, unceasingly with their easy flowing motion through the air. All day this kept on, and the black man kept indoors. Nothing could entice him from the comfort of a warm hotel room. By the following morning, however, the falling had ceased, and Jules Massey, on putting his dark face outside the door, found that the intense cold which he had experienced previous to the snowfall had changed into a soft, genial, almost balmy and spring-like warmth of air. The house roofs and bent branches of the trees were heavily weighed with their pure white load, while in the streets that abnormal silence seemed to reign, as feet of men and wheels of vehicles moved noiselessly over the deep, white, soft cushion-like bed. So Jules resolved to delay no longer, and having procured some kind of vehicle, was driven over to his master's old home to Vernwood. Yes, once again, he was driven along the old road. Who can tell what were Jules Massey's meditations as he was driven along that road where so many times he had passed in his days of high estate, where so few months before he had been last driven in that dreaded custody of the law, and where now once more he drove along it, that which in his heart he had ever known himself to be, a guiltless, blameless man. He entered the gate to the grounds by David Blackham's cottage or chalet, and alighted and entered the cottage to meet Mrs. David Blackman, his old sympathetic friend and hostess. She greeted him as if nothing, as far as he was concerned, had transpired, but there was a dark, blank, gloomily inquiring expression which spoke more than volumes of uttered words upon her face. Oh, lo, the poor dear soul, she said as the overwhelming feelings of her heart overflowed. Now they've been and took and robbed and out of his very grave, the dear. 
and when she went over the whole story in the same language, in the same sad, sorrowing, serious tone, and law, they do say, Mr. Massey, how do the poor dear is actually alive? Law, did you ever hear of such a thing? Find the body. Lord bless it, no, Mr. Massey, she continued to reply in question from Jules. They've been searching high and low and can't find the sign of the poor creature neither dead nor alive here, neither body nor soul. Lord, Mr. Jules, I'm that fearful to go to bed of a night for fear I should see his spirit. And my old man David, see he to me, says he, don't be sitch a moony. They won't even see no spirit. If allowed the fling of her tongue, how long the good woman would have gone on in this strain, it is very difficult to relate. But after listening for some time patiently to this apparently endless volubility of Mrs. David Blackman's tongue, Jules Massey tore himself away and left the chalet. As for Monk, he seemed quite familiar and at home, and walked about his old quarters with the air of a dog, who felt he was monarch of a good deal of what he surveyed. Then Jules Massey left the chalet and walked along the carriage drive through the shrubberies in the direction of the mansion, through the deep snow. He passed the stale yard, taking the same road that we have described him to have sauntered on the night of the murder underneath the leafy canopy of the small trees, and the unclouded light of the summer moon that never-to-be-forgotten night of his life. But between then and now, not everything was changed. Vernwood was still beautiful but it was like a picture of beauty painted by some other hand. Where then the zephyrs sighed amid the summer foliage, or wrought a gentle rustle among the leaves, now the cold bleak blasts whistled shrilly about the denuded branches, and thus, phenomenally early in the season, the snow lay a deep and spotless waste of unsullied purity, untrodden upon the ground. Then he reached the wide lawns which glistened calmly in the bright morning sunshine, outvying the marble statuary in the unsullied purity and whiteness, a smooth and solitary expanse through which there rolled the broad and silent wintry river, clear and cold. All seemed silent, solitary, and sad, except here and there a blackbird hopping over the snow or a startled moorhen by the stream. All silence reigned. There was neither sight nor sound of animal or human. Then he came in sight of the mansion, every window of which was closely boarded up, and over all there seemed to brood, in Jules Massey's eyes at least, notwithstanding the bright sunshine and the glistening snow, a gloom and sadness which weighed heavily down upon his soul. Towards the fatal chamber in which he had passed the last evening of his life at Vernwood, he scarcely ventured, he scarcely dared lift his eyes. Then led on by that inscrutable influence which seemed to direct his steps as if by guidance of some unseen power, leaving the mansion to his right, he passed, by way of the iconic bridge, over the cold, chill stream, his feet at every step sinking deeply into the snow. But overcoming his repugnance to the discomfort, he still kept on between the white, wintry, silent, snow-clad woods and up the hilly road, 
for somehow that irrepressible spell seemed to rest upon him, and whose influence seemed to impel him, and who dictates he could only but follow like some leading spirit, who behests he must obey, and whose invisible hand seemed ever by its beck to call on him. In the old days Jules wore shoes which in quality and appearance would have been no disgrace to Her Majesty's drawing-room, and he would as soon have thought of soiling them by such a walk. As he would have thought, on that cold wintry day of wading through the broad chill stream. But, to-day true, he had clad himself a little more after the prudence of a man who knows he must wade through depths of driven snow. Still he struggled and floundered on, up the steep woodland road for still the irrepressible desire, that same desire which had drawn him from his London lodgings, seemed to attract him once more to be near where he— the master whom he had at heart so devotedly beloved, should lay. If he could not be near him in life, if he could not hear his voice, if he could not minister to his desires, the faithful fellow felt, could he not look upon the place where he should rest in death? Oh, all the past with all its sweet and bitter recollections seemed to roll back upon him with a doubly engrossing and doubly potent hand. At last he had fought his way through the deep drifts till he reached the bleak hilltop, where the tall groves of beech trees stood, now looking taller, gaunter, lanker, as they bowed their nude and leafless heads, and the dark foliage of the evergreen yew trees and the avenues of cypress looked still darker, still more solemn in the unsullied whiteness of the ground. The wintry snow-clad solitude in the beech grove was supreme, broken only by the chirrup of a half-starved redbreast, who seemed to heed with curious and inquisitive eye an intrusion on the reigning silence of his cheerless, leafless, still domain. Then Jules Mazzy came to the mausoleum. The renovated fane in the midst of the circling iron fence seemed to rear itself like the thing of beauty in the midst of the unbroken solitude and silence of the grove and above the many generations of the resting dead. Dank and loathsome as it once had been, it looked now beautiful as it was, a place worthy of the reception of the sainted dead. The consecrated enclosure on every side was fenced by the high pawlings of massive iron, the only entrance to which was made securely fast, and inside the enclosure, like the world around, the ground was hidden by its snowy, hall of spotless, undisturbed, untrodden white. Over this, and through the woods, there reigned a silence which was impressive. Complete, supreme, there was a stillness in the air which seemed to refrain from shaking ever so little as a snowflake to the ground, and, through the surrounding woods, was an unbroken atmospheric calm. Surely it seemed to Jules Massey, as he stood there in the solitude of the wintry grove, a fit resting place for the dead. Then his thoughts wandered back to the past. Even in halcyon days, where springtimes bloomed, or when summer in its gladsome music smiled, he had seldom, if ever, approached the spot. Was it because any sentiment of dead affected his superstitious mind? He knew not. He could not answer the question even to himself. 
Then he mused over the master whom he had so faithfully tended and served, even to the end. But not, not to the end. Oh, how a thousand times he had regretted. But it was a vain, a lost regret, that he had ever left his master's bedside for that fatal half-hour of that fatal night. In the midst of these sad reflections, a faint sound, which brought him to himself, seemed faintly, indistinctly, to fall upon his ear. Then it came again, something like a far-off wail through the all-pervading stillness of the surrounding woods. Then, suddenly, for the first time, Jules Mazzy, on looking around, on collecting his thoughts, became aware that his companion Monk was nowhere to be seen. He called, he whistled, but no Monk, as usual, came at his call. Then Massey listened intently. Again from some far-off distance, the same sound reached him, came floating to him faintly, faintly, through the stillness of the wintry morning air. Can you imagine to yourself, reader, the hunted fugitive slave as he lurks in the swamp, straining every nerve to discover the baying of the bloodhound on his trail, whose fatal instinct must bring him back to slavery, to the lash, hound him perhaps to very death. It was somewhat in this way Jules Massey strained every power of hearing within him to catch the direction of the sound of what seemed like the distant baying of a hound. Now, as some light current of air wafted the music to him, it was more distinct, then again scarcely audible at all, now again more inaudible and remote. At last, after several minutes of intense, attentive listening, Jules came to the conclusion that the repeated sounds proceeded from a distance beyond where he stood. Where was a deep range of rock and woodland far away beyond? on the other side of the mausoleum. Then, as he moved away in that direction, the deep occasional bay now, unmistakably that of a dog, became more and more clearly distinct. Following the direction from whence came the sounds, Jules Massey sometimes walked, sometimes fought and struggled and floundered on through the deep snow. Leaving the mausoleum behind him, he commenced to descend the hill, on the opposite side to Vernwood Mansion, opposite that up which he had lately toiled. The country beyond was a wild, rocky, wooded, sequestered part of the estate, where great fallen crags and boulders, fantastic moss-covered rocky, deep glens, and the roar of foaming cataracts went, especially in the summertime, to form a peculiarly weird, wild, and impressive natural scene. But clothed in its wintry pall of white, we may again liken it to a picture of beauty drawn by some other hand. He had proceeded in this direction about a quarter of a mile when the tracks of his great paws in the freshly disturbed snow, as well as the now distinct and frequent sounds of the deep-mouthed bay, indicated beyond a doubt that it was the voice of his companion, Monk, that now and again broke the impressive silence of the dell. Monk seldom had much to say, even to his keeper. His intelligence, his love for jewels, his delight or displeasure, were greatly expressed tacitly by his peculiarly expressive face, or by his almost equally expressive tail. It was only on great occasions that Monk deigned to make himself unmistakably heard. 
and what could be the cause of his present unusual outbursts Jules could not conceive. Still, down through the rough woods covered with snow, which he shook down upon him from the boughs as he caught them to save himself, as he slid down the rough wooded declivitous descent, now sinking waist-deep into the snow, now standing on firm rocky ground, Jules led always, and directed by the deep, powerful, frequent baying of Monk, fought his way. Then at length, at the bottom of the deep ravine, some forty feet below him, Jules Mazzy saw in the midst of a great pit that the dog had dug out with his paws, still working with all his might, tearing off great roots of trees in the intensity of his excitement, now struggling with his claws and paws, now tearing with his teeth the great white and tawny body of the dog. Monk had scratched away the deep snow which had fallen and drifted to a depth of many feet along the boulders, and between the two perpendicular fences of rock which formed a deep and narrow kind of cavern or glen. He was dragging and tugging with his whole strength at some object before him, now pulling this way, now hauling that, now and again giving vent to his feelings in that long, loud wail or bay which had led Jules to the spot. But Jules Mazzy almost trembled with fear. He stood there shaking like an aspen leaf, as from the rock above upon which he stood, he was near enough to distinguish that object which Monk was exerting his utmost power to drag among the debris of the rock and earth and snow into the daylight was not but the body of his late master, Bertram Gnault. Jules Mazzy, as he stood there alone watching the dog, was too paralyzed, too terror-stricken to act. He could only gaze upon the operations of the mighty dog with a terrified, vacant stare. As for Monk, all the traditional attributes and instincts and powers latent, though slumbering, of his race seemed aroused to awaken, to revive within him. Whatever may be said of the influence of the first sire, or of the influence of continuous culture upon race, all the attributes seemed to be at least inherent and revived in that noble brute. He had brought the dead man's face again to the light of day. Now by licking and fawning he sought to revive and rekindle in that cold corpse the extinct spark of life. Then he laid his great body across the body of the dead. Then he fawned. Then he whined. Then he caressed. Then again he gave vent to his long, deep, baying howl. O oh, monk, thy heart is big, but thou knowest not that he was man, that unlike thyself, in that poor body in which thou wouldst again were life, there was a soul that shall never die. Unlike thou art, he was a man. He had an inner greater being, which thou, in all the greatness of thy heart, the affection of thy fidelity, thou canst not know, and which in thy wondrous instinct, an instinct surpassing even in some sort the intelligence of man, thou canst not perceive. End of Volume 2 End of Section 27